Well, well, welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Today we're joined by Dr. James Christensen, who's crawled through airplane wings as part of his day job and had a C-130 wing delivered to his cubicle. In three, two, one. So uh, to kind of get things straight before we begin, um, how do you describe your job to your friends and family? So I describe it as I'm an advanced development project lead. So I am trying to pull together different technical capabilities into products that have value and, and meet a need you know, from an Air Force perspective. So I'm kind of in between, you know, I, I don't do the basic research, but I need to be aware of it. And uh, I work with outside companies a lot to yeah, deliver that sort of tangible product that's, that solves a problem for the Air Force. You mentioned beforehand, uh, or mentioned us at least, a kind of unique position. So how did you get to this point, or how did your career lead to this? I was trained as a psychologist, uh, actually a cognitive psychologist or research psychologist, and then further specialized in psychophysiology, which is understanding what physiology is telling us about what's going on in the brain and how a person is doing. So I started working for the Air Force Research Lab um, right after I finished my PhD, initially doing uh, cognitive workload assessments for pilots primarily over time that has kind of expanded as the, the technology has really matured to be able to use wearable devices, wearable sensors, uh, small lightweight technology that's, that's very much applicable to continuous use and field operations. And with it, my role has, has kind of grown and shifted from, you know, I started out with a fairly narrow focus. I was a bench level scientist for the Air Force Research Lab into where I am now, which is I kind of lead, develop, manage um, projects, again, primarily advanced development, 6.3 work, that pulls together a number of different capabilities from physiology to gas phase sensing to different you know, electrical things like uh, electroencephalography. But all of it really centers on understanding the state of the airmen, what are they capable of, and helping them to sustain and enhance their performance. What would be an example of like the cognitive workload assessments that you did for pilots? Like, what are you having that do multiple tasks at the same time and see where things break down or how does uh, it work? When I first started doing that, a lot of it was about uh, different cockpit interfaces and systems. So, you know, for example, one, one uh, fairly big project that we did involved a new heads-up display for the C-27. The uh, heads-up display was hard to see. <laughs> quite fundamentally. And the, the question that kind of came back to the research labs was, how bad is that really? And that's, that's a cockpit workload question. It's like, okay, if you can't see your HUD very well, you have to work harder to get all the information that you as a pilot need to fly the aircraft successfully. So we designed and executed a field study where we looked at how did the pilots rate their workload. We did look at physiology, you know, how how stressed are you as you are trying to do different phases of flight? So how fast is your heart beating? How hard are you breathing? How sweaty do you get? And then compare kind of the, the new heads-up display to the old heads-up display and see, okay, how much of a difference is there here? And we, do we think it's an issue for their ability to safely operate the aircraft? So that turns into a recommendation, a report, you know, that we you know, made back to the program office that said, 
it really is a problem. You know, we, we are seeing, you know, significant impacts on pilot performance, and so they ended up fixing it. You know, relatively simple fix. They, they moved where the heads-up display was mounted, so it was easier to see. It solved a problem for the Air Force. So I think, you know, even though that was, you know, relatively limited in scope, it kind of foreshadowed, you know, some of the things that I grew into later in my career where we're trying to solve problems for the operational Air Force. And speaking of that, uh, moving in your career, did you ever see yourself working in confined space monitoring? <laughs> Great question. So, as I mentioned, yeah, I started out doing primarily pilot work, and um, the organization that I was in did essentially no work at all with maintainers. You know, that that was just not really part of our portfolio. So. It really wasn't until about three years ago, um, the Air Force Sustainment Center reached out to the labs and said, hey, we need help with this. You know, we think there's an opportunity here, but it needs research and development. Can you, can you help us out? That was really the first time that I was engaged at all with the maintainer community. And yeah, what they brought to us was a lot of concerns about being able to maintain our aircraft, keep them flying, keep them in the fight, you know, as much as possible. So this, so this directly gets at mission-capable rates, which is, you know, of huge concern to the Air Force, particularly with aging aircraft and uh, high deployment rates. So the opportunity that they had was, we think we can make uh, confined space maintenance at the maintenance depots more efficient, reduce the amount of manpower required by using wearable sensors to fulfill some of what human monitors do right now. But what they were basing it on was a, a pilot project that Lockheed Martin had developed in a very different environment. So the research need was how do we take something from a very different environment, adapt it to Air Force needs, and then you know, prove it out, demonstrate that it actually works. So I really started from scratch trying to understand how Air Force maintenance works and what confined space maintenance is and the regulations and the procedures associated with that. It was a fire hose learning process for yeah, me. It had to be crazy. It was nothing I'd <laughs> ever dealt with before. Unfortunately, we had great in engagement and support with the sustainment center, and then, you know, very quickly thereafter, uh, Warner Robins, you know, Air Logistics Complex, came on board as well, and they were very supportive of us coming in, working with them, understanding, you know, how this works now and what we would have to do in order to field new technology that would make it easier, more efficient while maintaining or enhancing their safety. And could you create a visual, you know, a mental visual for our listeners about what a confined space is when you're talking about uh, maintainers or people that work on aircrafts and keep them flying? Absolutely. So at the depot level, this is sort of your major aircraft renovations here. So it's not just, you know, changing a tire or patching a hole. You know, they'll strip all the paint off an aircraft, they'll pull the wings off, um, and they're doing major upgrades and modifications to it and, you know, kind of completely overhauling the aircraft. In the course of doing that work, a lot of it is hands-on touch labor inside spaces that are really not designed for human habitation. So, for example, a lot of the work that we've done is with the C-130 squadron down there. The C-130 has what we call wet wings, so the wing structure is the fuel tank itself. Mm -hmm. and. That means that every joint, every rivet line has to be sealed and inspected and have sealant replaced and repaired regularly. All of that is hands-on labor. So every single day, um, there's about 
couple dozen maintainers at Warner Robins just working C-130s that are going to crawl inside a wing fuel tank um, and do sealant repair, they'll do inspections, they'll do work on the, the plumbing, the hydraulic lines and the fuel lines, the electrical lines that all run through that fuel tank. It is a tough environment to work in. So I've, I've been in a wing fuel tank myself. It is dark, you wear a headlamp in there because there's, there's no, no light filtering through. It smells like fuel. Um, <laughs> yeah, that they, makes sense. They drain the fuel out, they, they run purge fluid through it, and they kind of try to mop it up as best they can, but it still smells heavily of fuel. It's extremely cramped in there. Um, so depending on exactly which space you're working in, you may only have a couple of feet, you know, just enough room to kind of wriggle your body in without even really being able to crawl properly. Um, so it's not for the faint of heart, that's for sure. <laughs> you can't be claustrophobic and do this work. <laughs> what kind of gear did you have to wear? So it depends on you know the stage of maintenance that you're doing. So when it kind of first shows up and there's still a ton of fuel around, they'll wear a full Gore-Tex suit with a hood and a full face mask. But by the time you get to kind of the later stages of maintenance where I, I was more engaged, you know, the fuel's out of it, there's no real risk of explosion. So at that point, it's safety goggles, earplugs, headlamp, and that's really it. You know, they might wear a Tyvek suit, that's just a real thin, you know, disposable kind of coverall. But in terms of other safety gear, there's, there's really not any required right now. And, and the, the good news about this is, you know, the Air Force does this type of work very safely. You know, incidents in confined space work are very rare. The uh, processes that we have in place now work well for making it safe. It is not fun, though. It, it is a difficult job. It's a painful job. I, I can tell you, I'm a little bit uh, on the taller side myself. For, for me, getting in and out of those spaces, I came out scraped and bruised. and. It left me with tremendous respect for all the men and women who do this work every day. You know, they, they are critical to keeping the Air Force flying and they endure, you know, the darkness and the bad smell and the pain <laughs> to Aww. keep our aircraft flying. So it kind of gave me that additional motivation to try to deliver a good product, you know, to make these guys' lives a little bit easier. And what actually has, have you and your team done to make their lives easier and safer? So we've been developing and demonstrating the, the confined space monitoring system, which includes some wearable sensors. So we've got some vital signs monitors that go on the maintainer themselves. We have an armband that um, we kind of adapted from smartwatch technology that provides communications, user interface, alerting to the individual that is inside the tank. And then everything else is outside the tank. So we use uh, smartphones to relay data to a cloud server. That cloud server then can provide situation awareness and continuous remote monitoring via web interface to a remote safety attendant as well as to floor supervisors, even the fire department. So, you know, one thing a lot of people may not know is if there is an incident in a confined space, the other workers are absolutely not to go in after them. You know, that could turn into multiple injuries instead of just one. So um, the fire department is trained and equipped to respond to an incident in a confined space. The you know, upside is, you know, they've got the training and the equipment to do it safely. The downside is it takes that much longer to respond to an incident. So 
what we're do part of what we're doing with the confined space monitoring system is we give the fire department a situation awareness display. So they know all of the entries that are going on. They know exactly where and who. They also have the vital signs information so that if something is starting to go wrong with somebody, it gives them a little bit extra warning that turns into a faster response time. And that beforehand, um, how did they, they just contact the fire department then if something went wrong? That's correct. Yeah, it's, it's um, the, in current operations, anytime you're doing that type of confined space work, you have a safety monitor that's, that's outside the confined space that you're working on, but has eyes on the access point that you used. Okay. Not, not necessarily you yourself working inside, but at least, you know, they, they can see where you went in. If they realize that something has gone wrong and you're no longer responding, it's their responsibility to, to call the fire department uh, to respond. But yeah, there's a little bit of delay there. You know, they gotta get to a phone, they've gotta recognize that something is wrong and make the call. Because really I'm just imagining, like we send Kenneth in the size of a wing and I'm looking at the end of it before this technology, this wearable technology, and I have to either, you know, call out an audible to him, like, hey Ken, are you okay? Yes. And, and that was, that was the mechanism to make sure that he's okay. That is the current mechanism. And then if yep. he doesn't respond because he's passed out or anything that could have happened in there, then I need to go run and tell the fire department and then just wait. That's it. Because there's nothing else we can do. That's exactly it. But now you probably have, you can reach out to Ken if like you think his heart rate's low or high or his breathing too fast or anything like that. We can use the watch to, to you know ping him and say, hey, you know, are you still okay? Um, That's and if, great. And, so, if he, and if he doesn't respond, we get you know much more immediate. So that that alert goes directly to the fire department. They know, yeah, again, where you are, who you are, uh, and they have at least some basic vital signs information to have an idea of what's going on with you. And say if I was in the wing, like I am able to use this device, like this watch, to check in and like click, say, hey, I'm fine. Or um, there's ways you said, uh, is there a way I can speak through it, or is it just? We're still in development, but yes. Sweet. Um, Yes, yeah, so you know if you're familiar with you know some of the Apple watches and the Android watches, you can speak into the watch, and it's it's just using voice over IP technology. Yeah. That's great. And have people that use this now, the other airmen, um, how have they responded to it? Another kind of surprising thing for me going into this work, I was sort of picturing active duty airmen, you know, blue suit labor, but at the depots, um, the vast majority of the labor is provided by Air Force civilians, uh, wage grade civilian employees. So with that, you've got a pretty wide distribution in terms of some younger folks, some older folks, men and women. And so there's certainly a diversity of opinion, but um, I think the most common thing that I heard was they very much wanted to start using the system as soon as possible because even down at the individual worker level, they're concerned about turning aircraft as quickly as possible. You know, they, they understand the need, they feel kind of the pressure to do their jobs well and quickly and see the system as something that would help them do that. The other thing I'll say is, you know, right now, you know, fulfilling that safety monitor role, it's just another maintainer who's doing that. There aren't specific people that are set up to be safety monitors. And while you're doing that, you're not allowed to do anything else. You're not on your phone, you're not reading anything, you're not talking to somebody. You are supposed to sit there and just do the verbal check-ins with, with your person that's working inside. It tends to be boring. <laughs> the guys really don't like doing that. They would rather be doing almost anything. And so freeing them up to do additional work is something that's really very appealing for them. 
you know, on the concern side, you know, there's always concerns about incidental, incidental medical findings. There's concerns about, okay, if I have to wear this sensor shirt, is somebody gonna actually wash it before, you know, somebody else wears it? That's fair. <laughs> we are working through all of that. <laughs> Those are some of the realities of uh, fielding the system is you have to have the logistics and the sustainment for the system as well as the aircraft. It's something that um, we haven't touched on yet, but how hot can, can it get in those wings? The uh, hangar bays are all kind of wide open. They're not really air conditioned, so it's it's whatever temperature it is outside. Um, so it can get, you know, Georgia in the summer. It can get 90 plus degrees, Ooh. high humidity. So uh, another kind of surprising thing for me is the guys told me that when it gets really hot outside, they'd rather be working in a confined space than not because they can pipe in air conditioning. <laughs> That's so, a nice bonus. <laughs> so the tank may smell bad, but at least it's cool inside. I think they deserve that. Going in there, at least you have one luxury. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, touching on what you said earlier about a lot of the updates here, um, where do you see this kind of going in the future then? Because you said we're going to be able to monitor uh, these people in these wings, make it a lot safer, and is the idea to, so it's, is it a two-man team now you said? It's, it's basically a two-man team. In the future though, I mean we see this as a platform capability um, that we are fielding with the maintenance depots first, partly because it's you know the largest concentration of maintenance work, so you get the biggest you know kind of immediate benefit from fielding the system. System. But you know, with a proven system that's affordable, that's rugged, that opens up a lot of other possibilities. So we are looking at then expanding the system to flight line maintenance down at the squadron level. So you wouldn't necessarily get the benefits in terms of labor savings, but from a safety perspective and an individual performance perspective, the guys who work on the flight line, absolutely, heat is a huge problem for them. So, you know, we have a lot of bases in places like Luke and South Texas, you know, where it'll be over 100 degrees and they still have to get their jobs done, you know, on those days. So, and on asphalt, that's probably even warmer. That's baking know? hot, absolutely <laughs> true. So, being able to monitor from an individual level, okay, what's their core temperature right now? You know, do we need to pull them and sit them down in the shade and give them some water so that they don't become a heat casualty? That's tremendous benefit to the Air Force. The other thing we're looking at is more industrial maintenance. So something else the Air Force does is we maintain facilities, we maintain industrial plants. So for example, earlier this week I was out at Tinker Air Force Base, I was looking at how they do propulsion maintenance, engine maintenance there, and they've got mills and chemical washing and plating lines and a lot of industrial capability, all of which has confined spaces associated with it. Whether it's under the machine or inside the machine, we've got workers in and out of these all day and it's also, it's difficult work and it can be dangerous. So having the system available for people doing that type of work just gives you that, that extra safety margin uh, to ensure that you know, we're absolutely taking good care of our people. And to help, uh, something I was going to touch on earlier to kind of give an idea of how common this is, um, you mentioned, let's say for a C-130, uh, how often do they need extensive maintenance like this? Or is it just, like you said, checking, it's pretty common just to get in there to make sure everything's all taken care of and sealed? 
depot level maintenance, you know, some of it is scheduled and some of it is irregular. You know, if, if they do have significant damage, you know, it, it may require depot level repair. Off the top of my head, I'm not 100% sure what the scheduled maintenance looks like. Yeah. I, I would guess every few years, give or take, it's going to need to to come in for that. But yeah, it could be like flying hours or, you know, correct. You know or it, an actual, this has been this many years and we must check. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, but at any given time, there's probably... If I had to guess on the order of 20 to 30 aircraft in work, you know, at Robbins, just in the C-130 squadron. And then you can multiply that out by, there's also C-5, there's also F-15, um, and uh, C-17, you know, also at Robbins. So, and that's just Robbins. Right, there's, then you have three Tinker and Ogden um, in yes. Utah and Oklahoma. So, it just goes to show. you know, they're keeping these very old and newer aircraft flying there, so... Yeah. A lot of a lot of workload. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So I can see why, for our viewers especially, why this is so important. Because most people, um, even when I started, had no idea how important um, those confined space work, how it is, or what it really entails. It's a, especially in the early goings of the project. Um, it surprised myself and a lot of other people just how much hands-on labor is required, even at the depot. So when we started talking about okay getting inside a fuel tank to just to do inspections. It's like, don't, don't we have like robots for that? <laughs> um, no, we don't actually. You know, there, there is a lot of work on robotic maintenance, but uh, we're still trying to really get that technology working well outside the aircraft. Getting it to work well inside the aircraft is gonna be kind of the next step. Yeah, it's a whole different beast from what yes. it looks like. <laughs> and, and you know, kind of touching on your research into these wings, we heard that you had a special delivery to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base to help you with this, your research. So that's that was uh, one of my proudest achievements as a lab employee. <laughs> um, so after um, several months, I think, of, of trying to figure out, well, let me back up a little bit. So going into the confined space monitoring development project, um, you know, one of our biggest concerns is we need to make sure the system works well and reliably, even before we take it to the depot environment, because we didn't want to waste everybody's time, take away from actual maintenance work with a system that we didn't have high confidence was gonna perform well. So um, we needed a realistic testing environment. And after looking around Wright Pat for anything and everything, we talked to the museum, we talked to the reserve squadron. Um, we uh, we kind of came to the conclusion that we were gonna have to come up with something on our own. And so I found the right form uh, to send to Warner Robins, actually, um, through the C-130 program office to get them to ship me a dead wing. So um, the wings are a hours limited part on the aircraft. You know, once you hit so many flying hours, they have to be pulled and replaced. And at that point, it's, it's scrap aluminum. It, it goes to DLA for uh, disposal. Basically, it, it, it gets auctioned as, as bulk aluminum scrap. So I found the, the shipping requisition form that said, hey, instead of sending it to DLA to be sold as scrap, can you ship it to Wright Pat? I sent the form and they told me, great, we'll let you know when it's um, 
when it's on its way, when it's actually shipped to you. There was a little bit of delay in that notification, and I was actually on leave and out of out of cell service when they called, so I, did, I didn't get that call. And so it was kind of a big surprise to a lot of the lab folks when a flatbed with a C-130 wing on it showed up at the gate <laughs> wanting to know what they should do with this thing. <laughs> so I, I'm very grateful. A couple of my coworkers kind of picked up the ball and ran with it there. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, we got it dropped in a parking lot uh, while we figured out how to actually get it inside the building. But um, but yeah, we were we ended up uh, putting it on a trailer. It, it went into one of our buildings in in the 7-Eleven team performance wings, and we set it up as a test capability that allowed us to do fully accurate uh, confined space maintenance uh, testing. So same tools, you know, same environment as the actual maintenance, but you know something we could do ourselves without interfering with with the work these guys are actually doing. So. I've got a couple pictures of me sitting on top of a C-130 wing out in the parking lot of one of our buildings, and that, that honestly was one of the proudest days of my Air Force career. I bet. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to get a copy and share it with our, our viewers. Please, that'd be awesome. Because <laughs> that's not something uh, people imagine. Like, I didn't even know you could um, request or deliver that. I, I'm, I think I'm like most lab employees. You know, I, I sit at my desk, and I try to answer emails, and I try to do my PowerPoint and my Excel spreadsheets, but... Uh, one of those PDFs I filled out turned into a C-130 wing. So. <laughs> that's great, that's great. A little more exciting than my usual day. So that actually, that ties in a question we had, um, speaking of ordering wings and doing fantastic things. I rhymed, I like that. Um, but working with that, um, how would, let's say, a cognitive psychologist or somebody in your field get to this point then? Like, uh, what advice would you give them? The labs is kind of a unique in a way because there's no kind of one set path of, you know, I want to get you know, to become a product line lead, or I want to be a CTC lead, or I want to lead a, a division or a directorate. I think there's there's multiple paths that get you from here to there. You know, for for my path, part of it was you know having a basic set of technical skills. You know that you know I had been trained in that I you know kind of honed in several years of essentially you know bench work uh, for the labs. But after that. Being flexible, you know, is, is the biggest thing. So I think where we work in the research labs gives us the opportunity to move between multiple different worlds. So especially earlier in my career, I was very engaged with university research, basic research, academic conferences, you know, kind of trying to keep tabs of what's going on in my area of science. But then on the other hand, also having the opportunities to visit operational bases, to talk to pilots, to talk to maintainers, to understand kind of their perspective on the world, how they work, and what the opportunities for us as a lab are to provide the technology that makes them more effective and safer. So I took a number of opportunities, even relatively early in my career, like the C-27 work that I mentioned, to get some of that operational exposure. And I think that really set me on a growth path to where I am now. So I moved from a bench level researcher to a research team lead, then to um, a project manager you know, type role. And then where I am now as a product line lead, you know, I have multiple projects that are ongoing, multiple products ongoing. I work with you know, the project managers that are under me and kind of apply the skills that I've learned over that, that kind of growth path of you know, how to create and manage a research project as well as having the technical depth to understand what's going on, what are the technical options, and you know, how do we, we cope with you know, setbacks and challenges because 
you know, anytime you're working research and development, there are going to be setbacks and challenges. Things will never work out exactly the way you envision when you start a project. Um, so the, the persistence and the adaptability ends up being key to working successfully. That's fantastic. That was a really good blurb there for, uh, yeah, really just getting yourself out there, being flexible like you mentioned, and don't be afraid to try new things. Absolutely. And a question we usually like asking near the end is, um, do you have a favorite piece of uh, Air Force technology either in history or that you worked on, and uh, kind of with that, a favorite researcher, maybe, that's helped inspire you? That's a good question. Okay. I guess if I, if I had to pick, you know, one piece of in general sort of Air Force technology. Um, I, I was, was and, and am a huge fan of Kelly Johnson and the you know, kind of classic skunk works. So you know, the F-117 um, through to yeah, the, the early you know, kind of stealth work, just amazing stuff. And to me, a, kind of an inspirational example of it, all it took was one person reading an obscure Russian journal of mathematics on wave propagation and scratching their head a little bit to say, hey, I think we could predict you know, how radio waves scatter off a surface and we could use that to make an aircraft invisible to radar. You know, amazing. You know, that's, that's what I think, that, that's when AFRL is at our best, is, is when we take something that's you know, kind of basic science that you know, has no obvious application and we're able to connect that to a capability that's absolutely game-changing for the Air Force. And the way those guys did it is, is way cool. I mean, Kelly Johnson, University of Michigan grad, as am I, so you know. I, he's I, beaming I, right now, you uh, can't yeah, tell, yeah, but he's yeah, really proud. I, there, there's, there's some pride there, I can, I can fully <laughs> admit that. Um, but uh, that same kind of spirit and that same kind of culture of being open to, to new ideas from everyone, trying things out, being willing to accept some more risk, you know, testing things earlier in the cycle, you know, some of the spirit I think that, that Kelly and Ben Rich you know, built in the Skunk Works um, has really very direct implications for how we do work at AFRL. And I'm, I'm, I'd like to think that we've adopted some of that. I, I, I think. Some of our successes, you know, can be can be uh, ascribed in part to building a culture where, where we're we're tolerant of risk and yeah, you know, we're we're open to new ideas and yeah, really you know support our support our, our younger scientists and engineers and give them the chance to try things. That's great. That's awesome. Uh, the last thing we had then was a fan question we got on LinkedIn. We had a fan wondering with confined spacing, is that something that can be extrapolated or uh, is eventually going to be used in space? Because I know that's kind of a big concern with how cramped that can be. That's so funny that that should come up. I, I do actually have a small project that is joint with NASA. NASA does you know routine vital signs monitoring on astronauts right now. That's primarily medical technology. Um, it's a little bit tough to use, and um, they'll have physicians basically monitoring that data and doing interpretation. But 
what NASA's thinking about is that works fine when you're talking about somebody in Earth orbit where you've got nearly instantaneous communications and you've got a lot of people working all the time on it. They're thinking about long duration space flight. You know, they're thinking about Mars, they're thinking about moon base where you might not have the whole team of physicians available on call all the time to monitor that data and you might not want to use the kind of medical technology that they do right now. So they're trying to develop wearable vital sign sensors that are more comfortable, are easier to use, that might have some of the built-in algorithms that can kind of tell you how you're doing without requiring a full medical team to interpret it. We've been working with NASA to do some joint testing, kind of some early stage uh, evaluation of company coming out of a small business. So this is Small Business Innovative Research, SIBRS. It's a, it's a great way to try something out. So small company out of the Boston area had a cool idea for uh, how to do wearable vital signs monitoring and core temperature monitoring that I thought was worthwhile. The folks at NASA thought had application to long duration space flight as well. So we went in together, funded it, have been doing some testing, um, and that work is, is ongoing right now. Yeah, if, if we start thinking about Space Force and we start thinking about people in space you know, more in the future, having you know ubiquitous monitoring technology, you know, whether it's derived from the confined space monitoring system or not, is gonna be essential to ensure that they're able to perform in that very challenging environment. That makes sense. That truly you could say with this, the sky is the limit with confined spacing. <laughs> That's great. I like that. <laughs> Go trademark that now. Yeah, I think I need to now. <laughs> uh, well, Dr. Christensen, thank you for your time uh, giving us a peek into some of the great work our human performance wing is doing to um, keep our maintainers and um, even your work into like possible space implications. So, so thanks for your time. You're very welcome. It's great to be here. And to keep up to date with future and past podcasts and to check us out on social media, make sure to see us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And make sure to stay curious. Logging off.